the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome back to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast here on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, been a little bit. Uh, myself, Joe Londrigan, and uh, my co-host, Eric Henry, needed a little time to get synced up, both kind of dealing with the uh, the blues of summer, as it were, with weddings and travel lightning delays and all that fun stuff but uh back with you once again to go over some news and notes from around the league uh herrick how you doing today bud doing all right man can't complain this is normally where i say it's a beautiful uh afternoon here in florida but it's that time of year where you know it's going to be sunny up until about two three o'clock and then you're gonna get your afternoon shower so if you hear me uh those of you listening scurrying inside it's because it's a little overcast and i'm avoiding the uh, summer shower as I'm out here on my deck recording this podcast. <laughs> it's funny. It's it's usually pretty mild up where we are, as I've mentioned before, but it's supposed to get up to in the high 90s tomorrow. And uh, I went to, I was going to go to Target anyway to get uh, some box fans for our guest rooms because we have companies staying with us this week. And there was literally like two left just because people heard it's going to be insane. And they're just like clearing out every fan in the city, apparently. Yeah, you guys up there in the Pacific Northwest aren't used to the, uh, the temperatures like that. So, yeah, well, we're pre- pretty much prepared for that down here in, in South Florida every uh, every day in the summer. We're not really prepared for anything, as funny as that sounds. Like, if there's snow, the city shuts down. If it, like, even with as much of as much rain as we get, I feel like people don't know how to drive in it. But, like, I don't know. They just, every time, I, I feel like they're surprised every time there's bad weather and it's strange because because like obviously people like the south for example gets bad weather all the time and people know how to actually deal with it so that that part of it i'll give the advantage to the south in that one where they actually know how to deal with bad weather well as you mentioned off the top you know you've had your fair share of weather um i don't know if weather delays or, or, or weather causing you know uh, uh, issues in your travel so i'm sure you're kind of over it at this point so to kick the show off here, going to dive into some uh, some weird and kind of unfortunate news for the UTEP Miners. Uh, quarterback Kai Loxley uh, was arrested over the weekend with a multitude of charges, including a DUI, uh, marijuana possession, unlawful carrying of a weapon, and a terroristic threat. Uh, it's not come out at this time what he did to get the terrorist tag attached to that arrest, uh, but not really going to make any assumptions there until we have more facts and uh, was subsequently suspended from the team. So, uh, you know, given how serious uh, some of these charges are and the fact that he really only had one year left and now is suspended from the team heading into a camp where there was already going to be a pretty, pretty uh, relatively stiff quarterback competition anyway you know there's a chance here his days in the college football uniform could be done but uh, you've seen guys bounce back from uh you know arrests like uh you know these minor drug arrests and and the dui stuff before but it's the weapons charges and whatever this terroristic threat charge i think puts him in a uh, specific category of trouble what do you think joe it's anyone who's listened to me on this podcast kind of knows how I feel about Kyle Oxley. And I've always considered him to be a unique talent and one that um, always kind of needed nurturing. And I'm not even going to dive into the charges as much as I am his journey. For those of you who don't know, he was a guy who was a big time quarterback prospect come out of high school. 
He's the son of current Maryland head coach Michael Oxley. Uh, Michael Oxley was at New Mexico, if my memory serves me correct, uh, prior to that. He was at New Mexico. But, I mean, you're talking about a guy who committed to Florida State, then committed to Texas, had a lot of things go on personally in his life. Um, he had his brother was, was murdered. And you just, I, I don't know if it's still bad as much as it is you're disappointed and frustrated that someone who has really taken the, the hard road, uh, you know, the long road to get to this point in his career, for lack of a better phrase, would throw it away. And like you said, we don't know the circumstances behind the charges. So I don't want to completely just, you know, cast dispersion and, 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 and harp on what happened. But it's just frustrating, man, because like I said, you know, he's a guy who is, his brother was killed near their, their hometown in, in Washington, D.C., and that kind of just sent him to a downward spiral to the point where, you know, he, he had to withdraw and go the Juco route and get himself together. And you, you just want to wish the best for someone like that who, you know, had an outstanding Juco career, gets himself to UTEP, uh, had an up-and-down season last year. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. But you feel like, all right, he's got that year under his belt. This is time for him to kind of progress as a player and a human being. And he takes, you know, the old, the old expression – one step forward and three steps back or two steps back. In this case, he's taking three steps back. So uh, not as much going to focus on the charges as much as it is just disappointing because he, he's someone who you want to root for. You know, you really took the, the long road to get to this point. So um, we'll see how the situation plays itself out. But like you said, this may be the end of him as a college quarterback, and that's disappointing. Yeah, yeah, certainly is disappointing. Um, as far as their current quarterback situation goes, they do have, still have a uh, rising senior Brandon Jones, who I believe is the uh, second most experienced quarterback now in that uh, in that stable. And then uh, we've heard a lot of good things about the freshman TJ Goodwin too, out of uh, out of the Houston area. So um, that just makes uh, makes the quarterback position battle down in El Paso all the more interesting. And, uh, you know, certainly good luck to Mr. Loxley and hopefully he, uh, everything gets straightened out there. Um, next we'll just move on to the, uh, stadium rankings that Eric, you did on UDD earlier, uh, this month, I believe, um, caught a little bit of flack for it, but I mean, I feel like that's pretty much impossible to not get flack given how, uh, opinionated some of the, some of the lovely people who read our stuff can get. And just the fact that it's, a list in general. So I just to kind of run through your rankings uh, from one to 13, uh, you went Marshall, North Texas, Western, Louisiana Tech, ten, uh, Middle Tennessee State, Charlotte, UTSA, FAU, Southern Miss, FIU, UTEP, Rice, and UAB. Now, me personally, the only conference USA stadium that I've ever actually uh, visited is uh, Western. So, um, with, you know, I can't really comment too much on that outside of what kind of goes into describing that stadium. Um, so for you, as someone who's been to at least a handful of these, uh, what really set Marshall apart to put it at the number one spot? Okay. So as you mentioned off the top, I took a little bit of flack for that. And like I said, that's fine. You know, you write something, especially you kind of know this going into it. When you, when you profile the conference as a whole, and you talk about all teams in the conference, uh, it's definitely going to elicit a strong response. So, hey, you know, definitely have no issues there. Um, to answer your question about Marshall, and let me let me step back just from Marshall as a whole and kind of provide a little more insight as to what it was. You know, maybe I did, um, maybe I didn't do a good enough job as as the writer to kind of provide context to my rankings. This was not about 
100% about the shape of the facility or how historic the facility was. It, it, was, a to, it was a combination of things in totality. So it was, you know, obviously uh, the reason why some of the older facilities are ranked last was because they're in lesser shape. But also UTEP, for example, they're, they're not doing the best when it comes to attendance. Legion Field, UAB had a great comeback story, and the Blazers have a lot of support around Birmingham. However, Legion Field is 80,000 seats, and it just doesn't do it justice when you have an 80,000-seat stadium, and it's only a quarter of the way full with 25,000 fans, which 25,000 fans by no means is a bad showing in Conference USA, but when you play in a stadium that's that large, it's only a little over a fourth full. So that, in terms of atmosphere, was what played a part. The biggest flack that I took, was from, at least just from when I got back on Twitter, were from Southern Miss fans and from FAU fans. So I'm going to start with Southern Miss first. That so was specifically problem with something we said that never happens. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It seems like we've, we've drawn the ire of the uh, Golden Eagle fans for a while here, especially on this podcast. But <laughs> what, what really set Southern Miss back was the fact that M.M. Roberts Stadium, it's not you know, one of the newer facilities like FAU. Uh, or Apogee, and also outside of this last little stretch, you know, the team has been up and down. Not, not to say Southern Miss isn't, isn't a stable program, because they are. They're certainly one of the more stable programs in Conference USA. They have great tradition going back from Brett Favre and, and, and even before then. However, attendance has been up and down. That's not to say attendance has been bad, but they haven't always sold out that stadium. So that's part of the reason why I ranked it ninth. As for FAU, Hindsight being 2020, maybe I could have put them a ranking or two above, but the same thing is really applicable with the Owls in that, yes, Lane Kiffin came in last year, excuse me, came in two years ago and, you know, it was really kind of provided a jolt in, in, into that program, into that fan base. And no one, you know, appreciates FAU Twitter more than me be, being down here in South Florida and, uh, and covering FIU. But it's the same deal where, if you're not consistently selling out that stadium, it does kind of create a, a unique atmosphere in that it's just empty and no one likes to see empty seats. So that was really the reasoning for why I ranked some stadiums lower than the other. But to answer your question about Marshall, I felt that Marshall does, a, uh, does the best job of A, having the fan base who shows up and winning and the stadium being relatively uh, in good condition. And that was kind of what, you know, really set them apart in my opinion. So the four I had been to were Marshall, Charlotte, FAU, and FIU. People made mention of some of the uh, newer amenities in FAU Stadium. And self-admittedly, I only made it to the press box. So I can't sit here and say that, you know, I've gone around the stadium and seen some of the amenities. And one thing I do also want to make clear is I – don't think that some of the response I got back, people realized I did actually talk to fans. This wasn't just me. There was a section there that said fan perspective. I, I didn't just, you know, read Wikipedia and say, oh, we'll just put the stadium, you know, one through 13. I put positives and negatives, some of which was done through research, some of which was done through my own experience for the stadiums I've been to. And then I also tried to reach out to CUSA Twitter, and I spoke to fans, a fan from every team that's listed that has a stadium listed. So, uh, for example, I had an FAU fan say, oh, you didn't mention the fact that we do a large American, you know, U.S. flag, American flag ceremony, pregame, do this, that, and the other. Well, I said, well, your representative didn't mention that, so uh, my apologies. Uh, but that's kind of what what really went into into some of those rankings. 
Um, I, and like I said, as far as FAU goes, hindsight being 2020, maybe, maybe I could have given them a, a notch above. Uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter or has heard me on this podcast knows how I feel about Jerry Richardson Stadium in Charlotte. I really think it's a, it's kind of a, a gold mine, no pun intended, with the 49ers. Uh, and, and I talk about that in the article. And I, I like to think that, once again, I, I was I like to think I was fair to every single stadium that I gave as positives and negatives. But just to give a little insight into what went to those rankings, that's really what it was. You know, for Alamo Dome, for example, I got some pushback from uh, our own Jared Kalmus, you know, here at UDD. And, and uh, I guess, you know, you're doing something right when, you know, the, the two side editors uh, uh, make their feelings known on the article, both Cyrus Smith and, and Jared Kalmus got it issue with their rankings but with Alamo Dome it was the same thing uh Alamo Dome was a facility that was built for a potential NFL stadium so you know it's top notch and they've done renovations since it was built in the early 90s to bring it up to speed for for UTSA football but when you have a 65 70,000 seat facility and only 15,000 20,000 people are showing up in my mind that's just going to be an issue so um, you know my rant's over there but that just should provide a little more insight into where I was going with the stadium rankings Sure. And like for the record, like we could get that level of crap for pretty much anything. And it's natural with the nature of doing lists in general. So I, I thought you did fine in qualifying everything for the record. But um, just to kind of get down into the nitty gritty um, it, towards the bottom of the list, uh, I'm not too surprised to see UAB at the at the bottom just with the uh, needed renovations there. But uh, at the 11 and 12 spots, uh, UTEP at 11, Rice at 12. What allowed UTEP to just kind of sneak over the, uh, you know, their fellow conference bottom dweller there in terms of stadium quality? I'm glad you asked that question. Simply put, from the perspective I got back from fans, Legion Field is falling apart, which is why UAB is moving to a new facility. Mm-hmm. And anyone who is, and I, I haven't been inside the stadium, but I've been to El Paso and been around the facility on campus there at UTEP. I mean, God, you're talking about one of the most unique, uh, gorgeous settings in all of sports when you talk about that backdrop being right there on, on the U.S.-Mexico border. So, I mean, if, if UTEP were selling out that stadium consistently, the Sun Bowl would absolutely be higher. But that was the reasoning for why uh, the Sun Bowl was at Allegiant Field. In your research for doing this, um, was there anything that like one of the the fans or writers or whatever that you spoke to pointed out something about that stadium that really surprised you? About any stadium on this list? Hmm. Uh, Surprise? Mm, Well, you know what? I'll say this. I think what surprised me, and I spoke to Jared Kalmus about UTSA as well as a couple other people. What surprised me was they all consistently said that the Alamo Dome can get very loud. And that's just kind of surprising because of the size of the, of, I mean, anyone who's seen it, even a picture of it, if you Google it, it is a massive facility. And stadiums that are, and even domes, I can, probably because it is a dome and maybe generates a little more noise. But, you know, st- stadiums that are that big, facilities that are that big, tend not to generate the most noise being half full. So the fact that the Alamo Dome, I, I mean, I, once again, I've never been. But from the feedback that I got, they all said that the place gets very loud, even if it's a third full. And that's part of the reason why it cracked, you know, my, my top eight was because of that. So that, that was surprising, I'll say. Um, and once again, it was something where it was like, you know, the, the, the atmosphere can get very loud but at the same point in time. Because it is a huge dome, we don't necessarily get that 
traditional college feel in terms of hearing the band and things of that nature. But yeah, I was surprised that the Alamo didn't get loud because you just thought for being a giant facility like that, you know, it might be hard to create noise if it's not completely packed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's, I think it's surprising to me about, um, Charlotte stadium is just how it seems like they they've had significant resources to pump into that athletic department for, for some time. But I feel like the, the football program is just now getting into a place where it's getting ready to be on an upswing. So I think just the fact that everybody seems to have like such positive things to say about that stadium kind of uh, caught me by surprise, not having not been to it personally. And obviously you've been there for quite some time. What, what really kind of, when it comes to like your fascination with that stadium, like, is it just, cleanliness and the fan atmosphere like what what makes you so high on that stadium yeah i feel like i've gushed about that stadium and you know maybe just how taken aback i was by how nice that stadium was for a while on this podcast joe it's a it's a litany of things man it's you know um first of anyone who's been to charlotte north carolina knows it is you know a gorgeous city in the south and i just kind of love the way you know you kind of go down the stadium on the highway and it's tucked away on campus. And when I say it's tucked away, I had someone say, you know, well, they said it's tucked away, but yet it's just that and the other. This is what I mean by it's tucked away. One of the most unique things about that stadium, Joe, is that the gates and entrances to the stadium are kind of on a hill. So in most facilities, obviously you've been to plenty of football games and plenty of stadiums, you walk in and you're kind of on the lower level and then you would make your way up if you're trying to get to the seats, right? Regardless of where you're sitting, you're kind of walking back up. Whereas with Jerry Richardson Stadium, you start on a hill and you work your way down. So mm-hmm. you're already looking down onto the playing facility, playing surface, which is really unique. And then it's also tucked away. And I tried to put some pictures, uh, not just our, our own stock photos, but from the time of my visit, that it's tucked away kind of there, you know, in, in a nice scenery. Um, one of the unique things about it is that you can't even almost find it at the drop-off point. Where my Uber dropped me off when I went to cover that game, the FIU Charlotte game last year. It dropped me off in between two dorms, and you're kind of looking down onto the, what is their practice facility. So you, you look down into where like they're kind of like practice fields are or um, uh, adjacent fields, and you think that might be the stadium. But then you kind of get pointed in another direction, and you see the stadium kind of tucked away there. So that was unique. Also, uh, just the position of their field house, they have a gorgeous field house that the team trains in. Um, it, it's just for the size, Joe, for, for the size of the stadium and the layout of the stadium, uh, it, I don't think that Charlotte could have done a better job in terms of design. The press box is great. Another thing that I love, the fans, there isn't a bad seat in the house. Of course, part of that is because it's a smaller stadium, but also the seats are very close to the field. And the last thing that I do mention in the article is that um, the press box is built fairly close to the seats. So, and I, and I talked about this in my game recap when I wrote the story uh, about the FIU game. You can look into the clear press box windows and see the, the press, the opposing team coaching staff, and the home team coaching staff. And personally, I thought it was pretty cool that you kind of have the coaching staff right there so fans kind of – politely welcome them if you're the visiting team's coaching staff to Charlotte, which plenty of fans took the opportunity. So it's just, there are a lot of unique little things and nooks and crannies about that stadium that are very nice. The concourses are open. Like you're not going to walk into that stadium and, and and get that rush where you're, you're packed in like sardines. I just thought, you know, they did a great job in terms of uh, designing that stadium. 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely on my list to check out in person one day. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Uh, and I mean, we could probably sit here and, you know, get into the nitty gritty of all these venues uh, for quite some time, but uh, don't want to spend an hour talking about this uh, for too long. So we'll go ahead and move the show forward then and discuss Athlon's rankings of the top coaches in Conference USA that uh, came out within the last week of uh, recording this. And uh, atop that list, Bill Clark makes sense given he is uh, the defending Conference Coach of the Year, uh, followed by Butch Davis at two, Seth Luttrell at three, uh, Doc Holliday at four, uh, Lane Kiffin at five, Skip Holtz at six, Rick Stockstill at seven, Jay Hobson at eight, Bobby Wilder at nine, Will Healy at uh, Charlotte at 10, and then Frank Wilson at 11, uh, Dana Dimmel at 12, Mike Bloomgren at 13, and uh, Tyson Helton at 14. Um, my initial reaction to this was it, it seems a little bit off as uh, as we've kind of talked about with some of Athlon's other lists, unfortunately. Um, it seems weird to me that uh, Tyson Helton's at the bottom. And I, if you are putting him in that position because he just has yet to coach a game, I that's one thing. But at the same time, I feel like, um, you know, he's he hasn't coached poorly regardless of whether or not he's been a head coach or not you know they even admit in the uh paragraph describing him how he helped wku average 40 points a game in both seasons that he was the offensive coordinator there so that's a little strange to me um i don't really have a gripe with like the top of this list in terms of like bill clark being one butch davis two latrell uh doc holiday um, or even Kiffin being five, you know what I mean? I think it's just, a, it's a testament to kind of like, there are some really good coaches in this league, but it's just like, they have to deal with the cards they're dealt with, like what Clark had at, at UAB and, uh, you know, Kiffin's a good coach. It's just tough to judge his whole body of work so far, uh, in terms of what he's done at FAU because he's only been there for so long. Um, but I guess if you're going off his whole body of work, like I, I almost feel like that's kind of unfair because people people grow and change so much, especially as as coaches, you learn from your mistakes. And I feel like he has. But I don't know. I feel like given how good some of the other coaches in that top five are with uh, Seth Luttrell, who's been winning almost nonstop. Uh, same with, well, you know, Butch Davis, I think it, not so much winning as Luttrell, but I think his ability as a coach is really starting to speak for itself and the improvement that you're seeing in this program. Um, but I guess that's the, the ones at the bottom are kind of wonky to me. It almost seems like they're just kind of tossed in there after it seems like there was more thought put into the top five or six of this list than there are the other ones. So what do you, what do you think? But before I answer that, Joe, I, <laughs> I want to ask you a question. You know, I am going to shout out, uh, a very unique, very active uh, part of FAU and Conference USA Twitter and Shane Marinelli. He, he's an FAU fan, FAU grad, uh, tends to do some work for the FAU Owls Nest, who if you are an FAU fan and you're not checking out the FAU Owls Nest, you should be, uh, yeah. despite the fact that they, they gave me a, a ton of crap on Twitter for, you know, the uh, Bill Stegen thing. But, hey, no one's salty over here. Um, <laughs> this is something he said, and I'm just curious your, your POV, Joe. Um, 
<laughs> Shane said in a public forum, so I have no problem sharing. I, uh, I quote him here. I do not see how a program getting shut down and millions injected into it and getting a year to do nothing but practice makes you the best. Doc Holliday is the best for consistency. Butch Davis has three wins in two seasons versus teams that finish with a winning record. He always gets the bump because of the Disney story. Now, there's a lot to chew on there. I think I'm just curious how you feel about the Bill Clark part of the first, because I think Shane does a, a great disservice to the coaching job that Bill Clark has done. And the fact that if all teams just needed a year to shut down and practice and they'd win a conference championship, you'd have 128 some odd FBS teams shutting down for a year to just practice. I mean, that's just a, that just is, isn't the case when you say they had a year to shut down and practice because that's not what was happening. Like go back and, and read some of the stories of the handful of guys that had to, uh, or that ended up coming back um, after the year off, you know, they were working day jobs and going to school and trying to make ends meet. You know what I mean? They, they, they weren't just sitting there practicing, getting ready for when they came back. It, it took a significant effort from the community and the school and the surrounding, you know, and the former players and the coaching staff to kind of get it back. So that's, that's just not an accurate statement, but I, I don't know. I think there might be a little bit of fatigue from other fan bases surrounding UAB story. And I get that, but, um, I also think that, like you mentioned, putting it in that frame is just not accurate and doing a little bit of a disservice to the job that Bill Clark's done. Uh, however, you know, in terms of like, I'm not going to sit here and talk about, is he the best like uh, tactician as far as coaches in this conference go? I'm not going to yeah. talk about that, but you do have to have exceptional leadership quality to, uh, you know, bounce back from your program taking that kind of hit. So I I'll say for that, I think he deserves to be talked about amongst the best coaches in this league for sure. Okay. So I just want to get that out of the way now to go ahead and, and answer your initial question. I really felt that Bill Clark was right at number one. And then I also felt that two through five, they had the right names there, but you could easily like, it would not have bothered me if two through five were in any particular order. Uh, they all have their merits. They all have valid points. Uh, Butch Davis, who obviously I, I get to see all the time here at FIU, he is the architect of arguably the, co the greatest college football team of all time in, in the 2000, 2001 Miami Hurricanes. And just the fact that no matter, no matter where he's gone, he's been a successful coach, um, whether it's UNC, whether it's FIU. Uh, we had Butch on the show, and, you know, he said, gave us this jam about recruiting, which is, you can't ask out or you can't get Miss America if you don't ask her out. And I want to ask him about this uh, next time I see him and we'll actually have him on the podcast at a future date, you know, just a hint there. Sure. That, that statement is true, but it's a lot easier to ask out Miss America if you're at Miami than if you're at FIU. So there's clearly something that he's doing well in terms of recruiting. Uh, Seth Luttrell, it, you know, the proof is in the pudding there as far as what he's done with North Texas. And, and you know, he's really made his bones being a, an assistant at Texas Tech, Indiana, uh, et cetera. You know, he's done with that offense. Doc Holliday, he's just a pillar of consistency. You know, he wins. And one of the things that I, that is really impressive to me as far as Doc Holliday, he's managed to recruit the state of Florida extremely well. And getting kids, this is no slide on Huntington, West Virginia, but when you're getting kids not only from Florida, but from South Florida, you know, the northern part of the state, once again, this is no slide on Huntington, 
there's not a huge difference between, you know, St. Augustine or Pensacola or, you know, some of the smaller cities in the northern part of the state and, and Huntington, West Virginia. But when you get a kid to come from Miami, Florida, to go to West Virginia, uh, that to me is, is proof of being a great recruiter and, and doing a great job and, and having an excellent program. So definitely want to give Doc Holiday credit. And also he's won with the talent he's had. So give him credit there. And Lane Kiffin, I, I've written this that I don't think Lane gets enough credit as a game day X's and O's coach. I think people look at him as a great personality. And of course he has the pedigree with the last name Kiffin and, you know, he's been able to have these high profile jobs, but I think, and, you know, once again, if it might be down the pipeline, I don't want to you know, give away too much, but maybe we'll have a chance to ask him at a, at a future date. Uh, I would love to ask him what the biggest misconception about him as a coach is, because I, I don't think that he gets enough credit, like I said, for his X's and O's and that he's grown a lot. You know, when he came, when he got that first job, you know, he, he was a young guy. And just how much has he grown from, you know, the Oakland Raiders debacle to now being an FAU and really kind of getting his, 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 you know, his footing under him as a head coach. Uh, I'd be super interesting at that. So I, I think one, two through five, they're spot on, and you could have those in any particular order. Uh, Skip Holtz, once again, very consistent as well. Uh, same thing with Rick Stockstill. I mean, there are a lot of good coaches in this league. Just to address what you said as far as the bottom half of the league, uh, I'm actually going to disagree. I don't think they kind of just threw darts, but, uh, well, I'll say this. Here's where you have a point. They put uh, Tyson Helton at, at 14 and put Will Healy at 10. And Will Healy, you know, is just beginning his tenure in Conference USA, whereas Frank Wilson and Dana Dimmel and Mike Bloomgren have at least, you know, had a run or two in the conference. Not that, no, once again, it's, it's been a struggle for them to get their programs heading in the right track, but they've at least had some footing. So to put Will Healy 10, that kind of seems like, if I were to guess, that's because they're giving him credit for the phenomenal job he did at Austin Pay, considering the fact that they had been a winless program for, I want to say, like two and a half years before he, he got them into playoff contention there at the lower level. So that's probably what that's about. But uh, all in all, I don't have any issue with the list. I think my issue is – like look at uh, 14 and 13 here with Tyson Helton and Mike Bloomkrin. I feel like they're kind of bumping them down because, you know, Tyson Helton has yet to be a head coach. Bloomgren's only got one, uh, one real year after being a coordinator at, at Stanford for a long time. And I, I, here's my thing with those two guys in particular. I think when it's all said and done and we look back at the collective careers of all these guys, I think we'll end up saying that, Mike Bloomgren and Tyson Helton were better head coaches or they'll at least have better records than a few of these guys that are above them, namely like Dana Dimmel and Frank Wilson. I don't know. Will Healy, I think based on the job he did in FCS, I think he might be on a trajectory that goes even above this level, but we'll see. Um, but I guess that's my thing. I think you're kind of taught. I think you're putting them at the bottom because they haven't had a lot of experience at this level yet, but I think just being optimistic about their full potential, I think when it's all said and done, once again, they'll be, they'll be held in a higher regard than some of the other guys on this list. Sure. And once again, you know, you made a great point. Some of these guys are just beginning their coaching journey as far as being in conference USA and being first time head coaches. So uh, I think, I mean, once again, when you just take a look at the list, there are a lot of good, talented head coaches in this league. I, everyone who I've spoken to, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my good friend, Emily Van Buskirk, 
she dealt pretty closely with Mike Bloomgren at Stanford. Uh, everyone I've spoken to about him really raves about him and thinks he's on the right track. Uh, same thing with Dana Dimmel. You know, so I think there's a lot of great coaches in this league, and, and you know, everything's heading in the right direction. So uh, while the, some of the guys may be on the lower end of the list, it, it's not due to lack of ability. It's, it's just getting their programs heading in the right direction. For sure. There's definitely reason to be optimistic uh, for a lot of different fan bases in this league right now, based on who's at the helm. Um, we'll move on from that then. Um, we wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about the concept of uh, G5 scheduling two-for-ones. Uh, probably the most notable example of that was uh, when it was getting tossed around between uh, Florida and UCF a little bit ago. Um, I know some of the Conference USA people are probably a little tired of us beating the, the UCF drum depth to death between this show and then Joe talk. But um, with that being the most notable example, um, you know, I, I don't think I have too much of a problem with that concept. I, has it been, I don't know that it's been talked about too much within conference USA right now, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't have too much of a problem with that for a lot of the teams on this list, just because I think it, it gives them the opportunity to kind of, um, make a bigger name for themselves in terms of, you know, it, 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 it also just kind of means more uh, in some aspects going forward when you beat uh, a, t- a higher profile team in their house, you know what I mean? It, it means, it means more for the players in some aspect and it, it looks back, you know, for the, for the national audience, it, it kind of adds to the entertainment value a little bit. You know what I mean? Like look back at, um, when Appalachian State beat Michigan, of course, it significantly added to the inter- entertainment value when App State was taking the lead and closing it out that the camera kept panning to sad Michigan fans. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I think for reasons like that, I, I don't really have too much of a problem with it. Um, but, uh, Eric, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Joe, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get your take on it was, and, and like you said, you know, the UCF fans and, and Joe talk and et cetera, you know, they've talked about that. And the fact that it matters, they're in a unique position and, and they've only lost one game in the past two years and have won two New Year's Six Bowl games. So, you know, they can take their own position. I'm going to look at it more from an economic and boomer bust position. Some programs in Conference USA, and I don't want to throw any under the bus, so I won't name any, but some of them aren't in the best of economic shape, for lack of a better phrase. And I, I don't think it's part of the reason why, for example, Western uh, Kentucky, not Western Kentucky, Middle Tennessee State mm-hmm. uh, took a couple of uh, pay games. And I'm not saying that they're in back economic state, but it just, you know, you take those games because you can help build your program. And, and if you win, you win. And great. But what I would like to see is you just mentioned it, the Appalachian States of the world, you know, when they can go to Michigan and upset. I would like to see a team really kind of – obviously, you can't plan for winning. season can go from season to season, game to game. But if you feel confident that you have a sturdy foundation, like a Marshall, you know, teams like that, like a, a North Texas, I would like to see you plan, you know, maybe two, three years out, plan a two-for-one, and you say, hey, come to our house once. Now, of course, you run into the issue of how large the stadium is, and that's the situation of an FIU right now where – the uh, the home game of the FIU series, the one and one they have with University of Miami, is actually being played at Marlins Park because, quite frankly, UM didn't want to come to Ricardo Silva Stadium. They just didn't feel it'd be adequate enough to handle the crowd. 
uh, that's its own debate for another, another discussion another time. I'm sure we can talk about that during the season. But uh, if you can get that opposing team to your field, you create a great buzz, you know, for your campus, for your community. And then if you feel that confident that your team is well enough to win, you play them. And if you, if you pull the upset, I think it's phenomenal. So I don't necessarily have an issue with teams scheduling two for ones. Uh, I, once again, I've seen some in, in Conference USA say, hey, um, it's just, it's football. You know, you line up and play it on the field and schedule one for one. Well, unfortunately, you know, life isn't fair. So uh, there will be some times that you will have to uh, bite the bullet. What I'm not in favor of, and once again, this is in no way criticism because I don't know the ins and outs. I would defer to, you know, the guys over there at UTSA and, and whatnot. But uh, did you see, I don't know if this was during our break. Did you see UTSA schedule the series with the University of Texas in which it's, forget a two for one or three for one. It's five in Austin and zero in San Antonio. We yeah, we talked about that in the last episode, actually, I believe. About that? Oh, oh, okay, yeah, I just want to double check. Yeah, so I mean, like something like that, I'm not a fan of because I'm like, it's Texas, and I'm sure there's plenty of UT fans in San Antonio. You'd like to get one in the Alamo Dome, but outside of that, yeah, I, I don't really have an issue with with the two for ones, uh, and I think it'd be great because you know, once again, you're able to generate some funds for your program, and if you think your team's good enough. Go play it in another team's facility and win. I think that's that's kind of, you know, the, who gets lost in this in the end are the players. Because the players don't care whether it's home, road, or otherwise. They want to go play the best. Um, and I think that's something that should be given consideration. Exactly. I think the the people that usually end up griping about this are the fans. And when you talk about, like, you know, it's a respect thing or, or whatever. But at the end of the day, college football is a business. And all these programs kind of need to do what, makes sense from a from a business perspective and i think um for you know teams in the p5 it makes sense because um they get to host these matchups the majority of these matchups anyway on their home field where they don't have to worry about you know a lot of the logistical stuff that comes with a road games in general and b possibly paying playing in you know stadiums that are either smaller in terms of holding fans or just of lower quality than you're used to um and then for smaller teams it works out because you get a payday and then you also get the chance to just play these higher profile teams that are good for either your your brand from several different perspectives you get to say to recruits hey look we get to play the best of the best and playing the the Florida's and the Texas's and the Ohio states of the world or whatever. And then B it, it also helps that like a lot of those games are probably going to end up on national TV. So you're getting your name out there for prospective admissions, regardless of if they're athletes or not. So it, I think it, I think it makes sense for all parties it, to some extent. Um, I, you know, I think there's always going to be cases where um, eventually you're going to get to the point where you have some of these programs, like what's, you know, going on in, in the American or whatever, where the talent's actually pretty equal. But I think that's just such a rare case that I don't think the G5 as a whole is really in a position to argue against the concept of two-for-ones right now. We're on so, the same page here. Cool. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Um, we'll go ahead and move the show forward then once again, and we'll talk about the CUSA broadcast schedule release, uh, that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. And from first glance, 
we won't go through the whole broadcast for the season, obviously, but at first glance, um, I'm pretty happy with a lot of this. I There's more games on CBS Sports Network than I would like, only because that channel is just a little harder to find than all these other ones. I'm pretty happy with the fact that there's a lot of games being carried on either networks that allow for Facebook broadcasts or they're just on stadium, which is basically just streamed on social media anyway. And that is so much easier for uh, people like ourselves who end up having to be all over the place on the weekends for whatever reason. Um, And I also think it's interesting that NFL network is picking up um, college football broadcasts now. And that's, I feel like that's a whole other can of worms that like an NFL property is broadcasting NCAA games, um, which we don't have to get into at this very moment. But um, I do think that's super interesting that that's where college football is now. Um, Then you have the odd ones here and there with like ESPNs and Fox and uh, Pac-12, that kind of thing. But I feel like at this point, it's a little it's it's crazy how much ESPN Plus has grown because I think they have more games than any other network by far for COSA. So I feel like I'm going to have to break down and actually uh, get that subscription this year rather than just finding other ways to watch that. (laughs) So but we'll see. That's kind of my first impression of the broadcast schedule. No, I I think that last point you hit the nail on the head right there, Joe, in terms of um, the ESPN Plus broadcast. And this is not, once again, any criticism of ESPN. You know, they're they're in the money-making business as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I am all about accessibility for CUSA fans. I can absolutely unequivocally say, and now coming around for my second year of, you know, being uh, covering this league and being a part of this podcast, being a part of Underdog Dynasty and, you know, SB Nation, et cetera, um, this league doesn't get – it's just due, and the same thing could be said whether it's the Sun Belt or, you know, the American. But sure, I think I've become a little bit biased at Conference USA, and I think there's a lot of great talent here and a lot of great games. And I would like to see the kids, you know, um, be read, be be easier to be found, you know, by the average fan. You know, I, I, I. I can't tell you the amount of stories I get from, you know, parents and whatnot who say, you know, FIU parents who aren't able to make the trip and say, hey, I, I have no idea how to find my kid's game, you know, so that's interesting. Uh, I had an interesting conversation. Um, speaking of uh, with that stadium thing article, I should have mentioned this, uh, Shannon Needham, who uh, is the mother of Nick Needham, former UTEP safety, who's now the Miami Dolphins, uh, had a great conversation with her on, on Twitter, had a back and forth about the stadium. And also, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, she's able to make the trip from California but not all parents are able to do that. So um, you'll have to break down and get that ESPN Plus subscription. And, and like you mentioned, it's interesting how much that whole entity has grown. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, without without getting into too, you know, deep of a discussion about college football and broadcast things of that nature, I'd like to see more CUSA games on networks that are that are um, easier to find. Mm-hmm. And once again, that's an entirely different discussion. It's not just as simple as, hey, put us on our network. You know, there, there's, there's dollars and cents involved. Um, in terms of the games that are broadcast now, I will say this. I was a little surprised at some of the NFL Network games. I would just think just because that is the NFL Network. I, I I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, so I'm not going to sit here and say that more people have NFL networks than be in, but um, I, I would guess that they do. 
And for example, I'm looking at it, we got Grambling and La Tech, we got Army and UTSA, we got South Alabama, UAB. I, I would have liked to have seen a couple more kind of premier games, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, especially I would have liked to have seen the Shula Bowl, some of the rivalry games to show, showcase uh, and what you what Conference USA has to offer in that regard. I would have liked to have seen some of those on NFL Network, but uh, there's a common theme in, in, in that all their games are 3.30 starts. So clearly they wanted those games during the day and not at night um, on Saturday. So that could have played a difference as well as far as getting those games on NFL Network. But all in all, just kind of my basic thoughts. I mean, uh, nothing really jumps out too much besides the fact that the games are what they are on ESPN Plus and NFL Network. Here's one other little thing about it that jumps out to me. When you look at um, the main ESPN channels, which ESPN and ESPN2, uh, and let's say ESPNU as well, you have two games that uh, are scheduled for ESPNU broadcast this year with Old Dominion at Virginia Tech and then Southern Miss at Mississippi State. And then there are actually no Conference USA regular season games um, regardless of who they're against on the main ESPN channel this year, it's just bowl games. And then the only, uh, the only one on ESPN two is uh, Marshall at Boise state, which kind of makes sense. I think that's a pretty decent G five matchup. Um, but, and, and then you have middle Tennessee at Iowa, which apparently they're not sure which of the three networks that's going to be on. But I think that's interesting that like, you know, even with games like, um, you know, like FAU at Ohio State, for example, that that's not going to be on uh, ESPN. I mean, it's going to be on the Fox network, which is arguably more accessible. But I just think it's interesting that like a reputation with uh, a, pr- or a network with the reputation that ESPN has, there's no uh, there's no COSA games on that main channel until bowl season, which is uh, that's just that kind of jumps out at me for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. Once again, same thing. It just goes to my point as far as about exposure. And, and once again, you know, there are contracts and legalities and things of that nature involved. But I also did notice that that there aren't any showcase CUSA games or, you know, conference versus conference team matchups on just the regular ESPN. Uh, and I'm even looking right now. We don't even have any on uh, FSN. They uh, we got UTC, UTSA and Baylor and UTEP and Texas Tech. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing that I noticed it as well. Right. Yeah, I think it'll, uh, but overall, I think it's, it's pretty accessible this year um, with the exception of the ESPN plus stuff. But even then that's, that's not too hard to get. I think it's like, it's like seven bucks a month, right? For ESPN plus. Is that what it is? Yeah. If my memory serves me correct, I want to say it's four ninety nine, but it could have gone up. So I don't want anyone, you know, coming back and saying, Hey, Londergan and Henry said it was, said it was uh, five bucks. It's actually seven. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's below 10 bucks. We can safely say that. Okay. And like, Honestly, I'd say you, you're definitely getting your money's worth when you pay for that. I mean, like, you know, if you're a house that just has like, that just watches sports and like Netflix, then, you know, that's like, that's less than 25 bucks a month, really, you know, wherever that price point on ESPN plus may fall. And then really the thing that people always forget about these like subscription services and everything is that like, you can share your passwords with people. So, you know what I mean? Like you could, in theory, you could get one account and then split that price between, I don't know, two or three people in your dorm room or whatever. And you're still paying way less than you would if you were trying to get like a cable subscription just to watch sports. And then you're also not dealing with like shady stream sites and that kind of thing. As the 
person of this two-man podcast who has been sued for illegal sharing of a uh, product in a previous life, I will neither confirm nor deny that you can share passwords. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and and I, I, I don't think I've told you that's true. I'll tell you it off air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that story already. Uh, with that, then, we will move the show along, I guess. Um, we'll talk about... Uh, some other news and notes from around Conference USA and mainly um, some players that are finding new homes as the offseason continues here. Uh, we'll start here with uh, Southern Miss receiver Kez Watkins has uh, apparently elected to uh, bump down to the junior college level after some academic issues at Southern Miss. Uh, don't know a lot about that situation as of now, um, just trying to get himself uh, Eric, as you put it, he was trying to get himself, uh, trying to get a little bit of a reset so he can get in good, good enough standing to go get back to Southern Miss or another D1 school, right? That's correct. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and read it specifically from Southern Miss um, and the source that was re- reported to uh, WXXD in the Southern Miss market. Uh, Watkins is officially withdrawn from USM and is no longer enrolled in classes. His plan is to go the junior college route during spring semester to try to get his grades up and then return to the team in the fall if he qualifies academically. So I have not heard an update on that story. I know you haven't as well. So uh, we'll take it at face value that he still is trying to get his grades up and hopefully we'll see him back in the fall because Quez Watkins, quite frankly, is one of the most dynamic wideouts in Conference USA. You're talking about a guy who opened the season last year, his sophomore season, with four touchdowns, three receiving and one rushing. So I just got to kind of show you. Uh, he had 72 catches for 900 yards or 889 yards and nine scores. So you're talking about a guy who is a top five wide receiver talent in the conference. So based on that story, he, he can take these classes uh, in the summer and then in theory still come back for fall? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Okay. So, so he's not he, he's not withdrawn from the school with like no way to come back. This essentially was a way where, and it, it's it's somewhat common. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like it's, it happens all the time, but you have some guys who just run into some academic issues and they were eligible for football season but aren't now and need to go the junior college route to kind of get the grades back up. So yes, he could in theory be a, a part of the Golden Eagle uh, team uh, either already or coming up uh, by the time season starts. Interesting. So something to keep an eye on there for all the uh, Southern Miss fans that listen. Um, we'll go ahead and lump these next two guys into one because, Eric, as the uh, FIU expert, you can probably uh, provide some insight into it. Uh, former FIU guy now, Talon Humphrey, is off to uh, ULL, Louisiana Lafayette, the Raging Cajuns, whatever the hell you want to call yourselves now. Um, but uh, he, he has moved his home uh, west to Louisiana. And then uh, Tyson Maeva has transferred to FIU. So, Eric, what do you make of these two moves as someone who's been following this program uh, pretty darn closely the last couple of years? Yeah, you know, I've kind of talked a, a bit about Taylor and his situation. Uh, you're just talking about someone who it really never ended up being the best fit. Um, kind of disappointing to see because you're talking about someone who, uh, by the 24-7 rankings, was the highest rated recruit in the history of FIU football. Mm-hmm. Uh, four-star guy coming in from JUCO had weight issues, was never really in the best of condition, got off to a good start in the spring, actually had a uh, interception, a pick six in the, in the spring showcase for FIU. But a week after that, he and his brother chose to leave the program or the exact word I got from uh, 
from FIU-SID Tyson Rogers that they both are no longer with the program. So whether they were dismissed or chose to leave, they can sort that out. Um, but yeah, it just was a situation where he just never really kind of lived up to his potential. So, you know, uh, he also had some issues off the field as well. And I wrote a story about um, it, that's back and forth. You can check that on the website. So hopefully he can get the best out of himself and his potential uh, at Louisiana Lafayette and his brother, three-star guard John Bolding, is also the Juco route. So uh, those would be those two guys. And then Tyson LeVay is another guy who, um, <laughs> once again, this is an entirely different discussion for maybe another day or an entirely different podcast. You know, I'll let you choose. Uh, he essentially was suspended from Boise State's bowl game because he was smoking pot. You know, was caught smoking pot in the in the hotel room. Uh, like I said, you know, we can have that discussion for another time, but that isn't going to fly in today's current, you know, climate. Um, he's someone who, if you follow him on Twitter, said, hey, I made a mistake and I got myself together and I'm ready to go. And he was one of their best linebackers on the team. I mean, he led the team in tackles. Uh, if my memory serves me correct, he led the team in tackles the past two seasons. So for FIU to get that kind of pickup is huge. And it's unclear as to whether he'll be eligible this year or not. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my intel, he has not graduated yet. So he probably have to sit, but you're talking about a stud linebacker, a guy that once again a three-star prospect coming out of high school and uh, led Boise State in tackle. So uh, all in all, those were the moves that uh, involved the Panthers. But I mean, that's one huge loss and one doubly huge pickup for the Panthers. It's almost like they're uh, making a trade, so to speak. But uh, that's an interesting pickup in the uh, former Boise State linebacker for the Panthers there as the season gets closer. Um, And yeah, that might have to be a discussion for another episode at this point. Um, But uh, moving on to my Hilltoppers, Jaden Hunter, the uh, Georgia transfer, one of their better linebackers, uh, making the move to Bowling Green to be part of Tyson Helton's team. Um, I'm pretty happy about that, especially with uh, Ben Holt, I believe, left um, over the offseason. So needed a little extra help at that position, Um, especially with like uh, I like I like linebackers that can kind of do it all in terms of just covering the field well. And, you know, they can come up in the box or just drop back into uh, some decent pass coverage as well. And I think he fits uh, that spot pretty well. So, I mean, as a Hilltopper fan, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, and I mean, it, it I think it's good that um, anytime you get a transfer from one of these SEC schools and it works out, then that's obviously, you know, that it never hurts to have that pipeline open, obviously. So I think, I think this is a move that's going to end up working out for the Hilltoppers, especially since they already have um, another linebacker from, from an SEC school and Eli Brown, who used to be at, uh, at Kentucky. So I think that core is coming together pretty nicely given the circumstances and how much they've, they've lost in the last like year or so. Um, and then we'll wrap up with a guy who we've briefly talked about in another episode when we had Steven hammer on the show, but Significant pickup for the FAU Owls in former FA, uh, FSU quarterback DeAndre Francois. Um, Eric, that quarterback battle just keeps getting more and more interesting. And uh, I, if you put a gun to my head at this point, I really could not tell you who I, I thought was really going to start at that at that spot for that team. Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. It's going to come down to can DeAndre Francois adjust to FAU in time and pick up that offense, and can Chris Robinson get his you-know-what together and be the player off the field that the Owls need. It's as simple as that. Uh, Robinson's a very talented guy. We've seen him, you know, 
this past season. Uh, had his struggles, but we all know the talent there. Uh, DeAndre Francois, he's a guy who had an up-and-down career at FSU, went through coaching changes, offensive line struggles. No matter whether it was him or James Blackman behind center for the, for the Noles, you know, they had their issues against protection, but he's another talented guy as well. Just going to come down to can Chris Robinson earn the trust of his that program and Lane Kiffin back, or can Francois pick up the offense quickly enough to say, hey, you know, I'm going to give this thing a run. Yeah, yeah, I, that. I mean, Stephen Hammer kind of said it best in just describing what what's happening with that group, and that it's it's definitely going to be one of the more entertaining battles, and they're going to have to make their mind up fast given just the the strength of schedule that they have i mean they open the season with ohio state for for pete's sake um but yeah i think it, it's all it's also interesting with what's happening with chris robison too and in, in that he's such a good player but just can't seem to stay out of trouble and then you have this guy who's like deandre francois who was when he was healthy was was pretty darn good for florida state but just really couldn't stay healthy which was kind of the same situation with um uh deandre deandre johnson was his name right the um former yeah. from, from yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so i feel like he almost kind of falls in that same category um but i feel like this uh this early part of the season for them as they figure that out is going to be nothing if not exciting um so should be fun to watch and with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this episode of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast up. Thank you all so much for listening once again. Uh, it's always a blast doing this show for you guys and with my good buddy, Eric Henry. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric C. Henry underscore. You can follow me if you want at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. And uh, follow at Underdog Dynasty as well, like Underdog Dynasty on Facebook. And visit underdogdynasty.com every single day for more G5 football goodness. Um, And of course, leave a rating on iTunes. That helps us grow as well. And subscribe if you haven't already. I'll stop telling you what to do with your life now and say happy football watching, everybody.